You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the locals weekly look back at what's been happening in the news in Sweden. I'm your host, Paul Amani, and on this week's show, we're going to talk about Sweden's 65,000 bomb shelters, where they are and what happens with them in the event they're needed. We're also going to get some very useful language learning tips from a Swedish teacher. And with a holiday coming up next week, we'll examine some unusual and potentially useful Swedish Easter insults. And as always, we'll be hearing from the locals James Savage and Richard Orange. Becky, unfortunately, can't be with us today. Uh, but first, I want to introduce our guest this week, Sophie Tegsveden Devor. Hello. Hello, Sophie. Did I pronounce your name right? Yeah, it was correct. Thank okay, you. thanks. Whew. Welcome to Sweden in Focus. Uh, we're going to talk to you at more length later in the show. But can you just briefly tell listeners what you work with? Uh, I work with the Swedish language and Swedish culture as a teacher, publisher and consultant. Great. And we're going to return to you later to discuss the things that people find most difficult when learning Swedish and how they can overcome them. James and Richard, has your week been anything exciting happening? I tell you what, my my week has just been staring at the news, not mostly mostly not what's happening in Sweden, mm. but what's happening outside of Sweden, being completely horrified by what's happening in Butcher, but then also seeing what's happening within the EU in Hungary, and now with Orban winning again, and now looking at the polls in France and seeing that Le Pen is within spitting distance of becoming French president. And feeling like the world is going to shit. Yeah. So yeah, my week my week has been just feeling quite depressed. That's been uh, similar to my week, I have to say. And I should probably recommend the Local France's podcast, because the Local France is doing a podcast on the, the French election, which is really excellent, and recommend that you check that out. You can find it on thelocal.fr. Let me second that. Absolutely. It's, this week's is brilliant. And it's specifically focusing on how likely it is that Marine Le Pen could become president and what would happen in that eventuality. Exactly. Uh, Richard, with me, it's all mainly been about weather. I don't know what it's been like. We've we've had we've had snow, hail, storms. It's just been. It, it went from a week of sort of gorgeous sun to just something extraordinary. So that's that's been. You never quite know what's going to happen when you leave the front door at the moment. Okay, I, th- I think we need to move on to happy, happier happier thoughts. <laughs> we so we're going to turn now to Sweden's ubiquitous bomb shelters. Oh that's cheerful. <laughs> we are going to get more cheerful later we in the podcast. We are going to get more cheerful, we? definitely. Yeah. Um, prior to February 24th, um, the, the date of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, these bomb shelters didn't occupy much space in Sweden's collective imagination. But after the attack, people in Sweden started to think a lot more about how prepared they were for a similar attack. And we talked a few weeks ago on the podcast about how Sweden was on a constant war footing during the Cold War and how it's rebuilding its defences and 
and considering NATO membership. But we didn't speak so much about these shelters that are dotted all over the country. James, can you give us some background on them, on when, why and where they were built? The first Swedish bomb shelters were built before the Second World War. So in 1938, particularly in Stockholm, they started building a, a whole number of bomb shelters, often in people's basements, in, in the basements of, of, of apartment blocks. And these were these were, these were done with, with, a, with a huge amount of, of organisation. So the this city council made sure that, that there were shelters with, with committees to run them. I have to say, I have a story of this. I went down to my basement in my old building once and found all the equipment from the Second World War bomb shelter wow. uh, down to the receipt from the local pharmacy where they'd ordered all the medical equipment uh, for, the, for, for the bomb shelter and a little leaflet to show you how to identify warplanes. So you could you could tell a Finnish warplane from a German warplane from a British warplane. Uh, it was really fascinating. Um, and you could see that these were extremely well organised. There was also a letter in there from the um, from, from the chairman of the committee, yeah. the, the bomb shelter committee, t- telling people where to be at what time. And it was all it was all terribly terribly Swedish and terribly organised. But these started in, in 1938 and, and this was this was run throughout the war. Of course, they they were never really needed in in the war mm. because Sweden didn't um, Sweden didn't enter. But then, of course, after the Second World War came the Cold War, and then this system of preparation for for war became even more serious because, mm. of course, then the threat was of um, of nuclear war with the Russians. And so, in the 1950s, they started building an incredibly sophisticated system of bomb shelters all, all around Sweden, but particularly focused on the big cities. The largest of these is in uh, Katarina Berget mm. on Södermalm in Stockholm, near Slussen. That's a shelter I've actually been in. So have I. Um, and you've been in, because it used to be under... We used to have a, a direct elevator down to the shelter from our old office. Exactly. And I can tell you what, you go into this and it is, it's a labyrinth. It's huge. It was, it had capacity for 20,000 people. Mm. It was, it wasn't, it wasn't just a whole blasted into the rock. It was a proper nuclear bomb shelter. It had um, blast resistant doors that weighed, according, according to Wikipedia, they weigh 51,400 kilos each. And they had, you know, they had they had a, a reserve power generator. They had, you know, a huge systems for ventilation. This was a this was a proper nuclear bomb shelter, and there were there were there were numerous bomb shelters like this built across Stockholm. But then and and they kept building bomb shelters in Sweden um, right up uh, through to uh, the seventies and eighties. Although later on the, the the emphasis was on building shelters against conventional attack rather than right. nuclear attack. And um, until two thousand and two, there were certain kinds of um, re- uh, requirements for certain kinds of buildings to to have bomb shelters. Richard, you've looked into the current state of the shelters. What, what kind of state are they in? Um, are they fit for purpose at the moment? Well, no, no one knows exactly because um, they they're not they haven't really been checked. The civil contingencies agencies only had funding to inspect. I think two thousand a year, and there's you know sixty four, sixty five thousand shelters. So that from they they say that. Their statistics indicate about 30% are not um, in a suitable, you know, w- would fail a test. But I spoke to a specialist building company called Quidrum Specialisten, and they reckon only about 5% could be ready within tw- 48 hours, which is what that's, which is their sort of target. What what kind of equipment and facilities should people expect to find when they are fully in order? There's supposed to be um, toilets, running water, I think some medical equipment, electricity and ventilation. 
and I think that's about it. So it's just the basics. There's no food in them. You're supposed to bring your own food. You're supposed to bring a first aid kit. You're supposed to bring a torch, water, clothes, uh, telephone, all that sort of thing. So it, it, it's it's essentially most of the equipment is protective. It, it's 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 ventilation and air filters and things to stop ionizing radiation getting you and um, to keep out poison gases. And Quidron specialist said that I think most of the filters haven't been changed since they were built. So a lot of them are sort of 60 years old, 70 years old. So probably not up to scratch. What are the what are the toilets like? What kind of toilets are they? Well, what he said is that up until about the 60s, they were paper toilets, which I, I can't quite visualise. I haven't seen any pictures of them. I've been trying to find out what, what that could possibly mean, that there may it may be a fo- some kind of fold-out cardboard structure. I don't know what that what that is, but he said that they were used in with with plastic bags so you would use a plastic bag and then deposit it in this paper toilet but after the 60s they started having sort of bucket toilets so plastic buckets um and those are the ones that the guy from quidrum specialist and said that the older ones should have their toilets replaced with with the, the more modern plastic variant so have you visited one of these shelters, Sophie? Uh, we have one in our, our building block. It's a very short, small uh, room in the basement. Uh, it's got one of these sort of rolling locks to get in. But right. right now, people are storing their stuff in there. So I think it's, it's really one of these things that would take at least a week or two to prepare. Mm. There's also this discussion about um, ab- about shelters, about nuclear shelters, which is, you know, it, uh, even if they even if they protect you during the immediate n- nuclear attack, you might well die as soon as you leave because uh, because of radiation poisoning. If there's a, you know if, if there's a, if there's a serious nuclear war in a nuclear winter, then you, you it might not be it might not keep your life for very long. We should probably mention for listeners that there are no imminent attacks expected on Sweden. <laughs> no, there are not, and I think I think that's really important as we discuss this for people to to see that. Yeah, yeah. There's no. There's no. There's no. The government says there is. There is no. Um, current threat against Sweden. And there is a culture in Sweden of what they call um, Buried Skop. Um, you know, throughout the Second World War, throughout the, throughout, and, and throughout the Cold War in particular, this idea that we always need to be ready to, pre- particularly to protect the civilian population in the event of war. Um, and there, um, you know, and it's probably a very, it's, it's, a, it's a very, it's a very healthy culture. You know, be, be prepared for the worst, hope for the best. And how do we identify these bomb shelters? Well, there's signs. They use the international symbol for a for a bomb shelter, which is a blue triangle on an orange background, and then you get and then it's the words "Hudrum" is written across the middle. And and I, I I kind of subconsciously have seen these, um, you know, ever since I've lived in in Malmo. It's only now that I've realised kind of what what that sign means. And you can find them. I think there's a, there's a website called uh, I think Hudrum's Karta, or you can at least find the map Hudrum's Karta on, uh, on MSB's website. I think it is. So go to msb.se. So go to msb.se, and I think there's a link in one of the articles on the local as well. This show is made possible by members of The Local. It takes time and resources to produce independent journalism, and we'd like to thank everybody who supports us through membership. If you're not yet a member, I'd urge you to check out our excellent introductory offer for Sweden in Focus listeners at thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer. 
Okay, that was quite a heavy topic to start the podcast this week. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna move on now and um, talk a bit more about language. And we ran a poll this week asking you how easy you found it to learn Swedish. And luckily, we have a Swedish teacher here to give some pointers. But just to run through the results quickly first. 47% said not easy at all to learn Swedish. 32% said logum, not too easy, not too hard. 12% said I haven't learned Swedish. And 7% said easy. In the, in the survey, we asked people to give examples of funny mistakes they've made learning Swedish. One I saw was somebody mixing up kissa and schissa. Um, so urinate and kiss. So Very easy to Yeah, to those make. ones you've got to be a little bit careful. And, and pronunciation is something we'll be talking about in a minute. Um, and we have with us, as I mentioned, uh, Sophie Teixveden-Devo. And hello again, Sophie. I want to ask you first about loose publishing. What is it and how did it come about? Um, well, I started off as a Swedish teacher uh, a few years ago and I got in touch with another person doing the same type of job in Umeå. Emil Molander is his name. And he said, let's set up a publishing house. Um, like you do. I, 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 and we did. And we sort of planned to just publish our own stuff because we've been, both been teaching professional Swedish for many years and we had lots of material. And then two days into this project, we received a manuscript uh, from another person that we've never heard about before. <laughs> and it was uh, Sarah Campbell, who lives in Uppsala. She wanted to write a book uh, for parents and how to use sort of parenthood to learn Swedish. So we said, whoops, uh, <laughs> what do we do? And then we said, let's let's publish it. And that's where it started. And now we're wow. just sort of trying to learn how it works. And how many books have you published? I think around 20. Uh, and we're deeply embarrassed about most of them <laughs> because we didn't know what we were doing in the beginning. But uh, things are getting better. And we published a book with the local uh, recently that we're quite proud of. Mm -hmm. uh, this is of a good standard, in my opinion. Yeah, I would, incredibly I would agree. brave setting up a publishing it company. It's, um, it's, it's, it must be a complicated business. It, it's, it's, it's brave and stupid. And it's not maybe the, the most sort of uh, profitable type of business you can run. But it's a lot of fun and... and uh, you get a wide range of tasks, which I really enjoy. So uh, we're very happy and we're enjoying ourselves. Uh, I noticed that you've got a book coming up by um, Paddy Kelly, who's, mm -hmm. uh, who used to write, write for the local. He writes really well. What's his book about? It's called We Can English. And it's this absolutely amazing project because for years and years, Paddy has collected examples of Swedish companies using English in their corporate language or like in their advertising copy. And it's often very bad. If, if you're a native English speaker, it doesn't really make sense what they're writing or sometimes it's very offensive. Someone wrote, uh, they wanted to make a joke with tea and therapist and they basically wrote tea rapist uh, <laughs> uh, on, on, on a big sign. So he's been taking pictures and then he's sort of got this commentary in, in his book. But but it, it, it's not about criticising, you know, Swedish people no, in general. it's about laughing at them, right? <laughs> it's a bit about laughing at them, but also kind of making a point, why don't big corporations hire native English-speaking copywriters? Like, they certainly have the budget for it, but yeah. there is a bit of hubris in this situation. They think we speak better English than we do. And this is uh, being published the 28th of April. Uh, you should definitely get a copy. It's a great uh, gift book, for example, for someone who's new in Sweden, because I think a lot of your readers are uh, annoyed with this phenomenon of bad English in um, 
advertising copy. Brilliant. Yeah, I really look forward to that. Um, and you mentioned as well that you published um, The Locals book, which was written by um, Catherine Edwards mm-hmm. and Emma Lovegreen. Remind listeners what it's called. It's called Villa Volvo Vove, which is uh, a Swedish saying for sort of the lagom Swedish life when you get a house, you get a car and you get a dog and you're living that sort of normal Svensson life. Uh, and it's it's based on the locals word as uh, the article series word of the day. So it, it's it's a list of words, basically. But Catherine has explained these Swedish words in a, in a very good way with like focus on society and culture. So it's, it's not necessarily a language learning book, but it's a way to get a bit closer to the way Swedish people function and how they reason in different situations. Yeah, and obviously we're biased, but I, I do think it's a fantastic book. Uh, you've worked as a uh, Swedish teacher for many years, as you mentioned. And what, what, do, you, what do people find hardest about learning the language? I, I think what people in general, I mean, it, it obviously depends on where you come from, what other languages you speak, if, if you enjoy studying, etc. But I think it's it's um, it, it's that project of actually learning a language because that's a long-term project. It's a huge commitment. It's going to cost you money, probably. It's going to cost you a lot of time. It's going to cost you a lot of effort. And um, with the people I meet, people try to find excuses not to commit to this project and and I, I think that's the hardest part is like to admit that you have to work for it who do you teach Swedish to at the moment I'm actually not teaching much um, I'm, I'm working as a consultant in the energy sector helping them to um, be better at sort of welcoming people from other countries who don't speak uh, a lot of Swedish okay. or who, who have a different cultural background but over the years I've obviously taught uh, many people, uh, people working in embassies, people in finance, engineering, housekeepers, artists. I had a reindeer homeopath once. A what? Uh, <laughs> sorry if you're listening to this. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was a German lady. Uh, she had a business in Finland uh, helping reindeers. Um, and she wanted to expand her market. So she wanted to speak Swedish to the Swedish reindeers. Uh, so that's what to I the reindeers. To the reindeers. Um, so uh, <laughs> probably the most difficult one. But she was she was a very happy person. But I, I think otherwise, when you work as a sort of because very often I have this sort of one to one tuition when I meet individuals mm. at work, and and um, when you're learning a language, you become very vulnerable. Mm. Uh, and. I think an interesting effect of that is you really open up and talk about all sorts of vulnerabilities. So I, I get to know people on a very deep level. And I can tell you that pretty much everyone except this reindeer homeopath hates their job. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to find a job you like, become a reindeer homeopath. I have so many questions about reindeer I homeopathy. Well, I think the proof, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, did the, did the reindeer get good at Swedish? <laughs> <laughs> Um, you mention um, on your on your website um, that you know there are, there are three things that are most important when people are, are learning Swedish, and those are pronunciation, cultural factors, and context. So I thought I would ask you for examples of each of those. So we start with pronunciation. What do people generally struggle with? 
I think when uh, people start learning Swedish, you know, they talk to their Swedish friends or colleagues or partners and they will tell you, hoo, hoo, you know, now you're going to struggle with this and sh yeah. or maybe, uh, you know, we have different letters. Uh, and this is not necessarily what's it, it might be difficult to get it right, but it's not necessarily important. And I think that's something that um, you need to sort of distinguish. You need to prioritize. Yeah. And, and in Swedish, what's important is, is stress. You know, every word has a bit that's long. It's either a vowel sound or a mm. consonant sound. And some words have two long sounds. And learning to identify that um, is something you need to start with. Um, and this is often quite difficult because in most languages, you don't have that type of distinction. So you're not sort of hearing that this is what Swedes do when they, when they speak. So if you learn how to identify and then, you know, implement it mm. in your own speech and actually daring to implement it because you might feel a bit ridiculous when you're saying things like musik instead yeah. of musik uh, which is a very common mistake mm. this is the most important bit but I also think when I meet people uh, who are learning Swedish that they don't really distinguish between having an accent and having a poor pronunciation uh, so having an accent I think is you know that's beautiful yeah. you know that, that tells about your identity it tells about your history and it also says that you know you're a really brave person because you learned a new language that's something I admire but pronunciation is a matter of like making yourself understood and it shouldn't be too tiring or annoying to listen to you because this is something that I experience with lots of my students it's it's an effort to trying to figure out what the, what they are saying what they're trying to say and th this is not going to help you when you're trying to work or when you're trying to make friends or you know having a life in Sweden you know people should feel comfortable having a conversation with you so do, does this mean that people should sort of mimic Swedes more in how they speak or how what kind of what kind of concrete tips can you give people there yes try to listen to people I, I think this is like the first thing you know turn on the radio and just listen what does Swedish actually sound like uh, in my experience uh, many learners use text uh, as a sort of primary learning material and they sort of want to pronounce Swedish the way it's written and for example the Swedish word for it dea everyone says det And you have phrases like diare, det är det. You know, it, it's, it's not pronounced in any way the way it's written. So you need to accept that and, and listen. And the, I, I think developing your pronunciation here will also help you with listening comprehension because it's obviously going to be very difficult to hear what people are saying if you have a different idea of the way words are pronounced or what they're supposed to sound like. And what sort of cultural factors come into play? I, I think it's very difficult to draw a line between uh, culture and language. But um, I, I think even if you're not, say, using Swedish at work, for example, you might be working in English, it, it's, it's a great thing to speak Swedish or know a little bit of Swedish because that will help you to understand what your Swedish colleagues are saying when they use English. Because even if they speak good or excellent English, they often use English in the Swedish way. Uh, and for example, Swedish people are quite reluctant to say no. Um, they're probably going to say, yeah, you know, and in Swedish, you know, that, that, that sort of rising tone signals, this is a very hesitant uh, yes, uh, which is in, in, in effect, no. But as a non-native speaker of, of English, you might just say yes, uh, which might be interpreted as a yes. Um, so as a learner, it's, it's good to know what sort of communication environment you're navigating in. When you say that context is important, what do you what do you mean by that? Well, 
obviously you're going to use Swedish in different situations and you might work, use it for work, for professional reasons, or you might use it in a sort of private context or, or personal context. And um, dependent on in what situation you are, you're obviously using a different type uh, of language. And Curiously enough, when 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 uh, I, I, I teach professionals, they often assume that if they're in a professional context, they're going to use a much more formal uh, language. Whereas when you're in a Swedish context, it's actually a matter of sort of using a more informal language, regardless uh, of context. And I think it's very important for learners to feel comfortable and assured in that this is the right uh, decision. Because in many uh, cultures, you use a more formal or more advanced language. To show, for example, your authority or what knowledge you have or that you know what you're doing. Um, I'm teaching quite a lot of medical professionals, for example, and this is very interesting because a lot of the professional vocabulary uh, has a Latin etymology and it's the same in English, the same in French, in, in many European languages, whereas uh, in Swedish, those words exist, uh, and it's good. They, they need to know them to write their medical records, for example. But when they're communicating with their patients, they need to use an informal language because that's also um, in a in legal context. In a Swedish medical situation, you need to communicate in a way uh, that the patient understands. This mm. is a legal requirement, and your patient will not understand your fa fancy Latin. They need to use the words or listen to the words that they use in an everyday context. So when I teach uh, medical professionals, it's actually about learning the everyday language because they often know the professional language already. If we could go back just for a second to sort of the musicality of Swedish. Because um, I, think, I think from my own experience, that's really important to actually make the effort to, to sound Swedish. Would you agree? Uh, I, I think it's really important and this is also a way of signal politeness in Swedish. We use the tone and we use the stress to signal politeness. I'm very often criticized for not having a word for please, for example, in, in, in Swedish. And, and many of my students, you know, they've come up with a good alternative. They Google this and it's vanligan or something. But vanligan is something that makes you sound passive aggressive. Mm. So, so don't use it. You know, if you found the Swedish version of please, please don't use it. It's going to put you in trouble. But uh, when we speak and we we want to sound nice. We make the words longer. We sing a little bit more. And if you feel ridiculous when, when you do that sing song thing, you know, you actually sound a bit rude uh, and a bit abrupt. So mm. it's, it's, you know, if you feel ridiculous, you know, the only risk you're taking is that you're sounding more polite. And I, I think, I think, you know, that's do it, you know. People will open up if you do a little bit more sing song. Yeah. And, and if you get it wrong, you know, it, 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 it's fine. But you need to start trying. The language learning is a lot about learning to be brave and be and sound ridiculous, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and exaggerating. You, you, uh, you need to sort of exaggerate and then you can... And mimic the person you're talking to yeah. as well, which all, which always feels a bit weird. And, you know, you're standing there with, with a middle-aged middle woman who's sort of like talking like a middle-aged woman and you end up like... Your men used it, <laughs> and it sound and you sound like you you sound camp like a middle aged woman, but I don't mind. It's fine. <laughs> but I think this is really nice when you move to a new country. Like people won't judge you the same way. They will they will judge you. But I, I, I moved to the UK when I was nineteen, and and I'm born in a quite rough suburb outside Stockholm. And and the way I spoke, you know, I sounded like 
suburban and, and you know one of you know coming from the hood <laughs> half gangster style uh, and then I moved to the UK and I was suddenly not from the suburb I was a Swedish girl and you know I was Sophie so I, 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 I was suddenly you know a bit posh I, I, and people treated me very differently and then I came back to Sweden and you know I was the one who'd lived abroad so it, it really changes other people's perception of you and I think this is a great opportunity you know to to find a, a new identity and be the person you want to be or a person you never wanted to be but you can enjoy somehow this podcast is free to listen to but if you like what you hear and are not yet a member of the local please consider joining by subscribing you get the latest news from sweden that impacts you essential practical information and advice on life in sweden and unrestricted access to all editions of the local please check out our membership offer at thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer to find out more it's Easter next week, which can only mean one thing, and that's that you better watch out because Swedes are preparing to hurl insults at people for getting out of bed too late. Or are they? Actually, probably not. Probably not. We've got an article coming up on the site about Swedish Easter insults, and this is kind of an old tradition um, that goes back to a time when people had, had the week off work uh, and they they didn't work out of uh, respect for you know the the season and the religious aspects, um, but they were also expected to get out of bed because you know Swedish is uh, a Lutheran society or was much more a Lutheran society previously, and if you didn't get out of bed, uh, people would call you names. Um, so <laughs> this is I know, and I'd never heard of this. I've lived in Sweden a long time, this and the funny totally thing is, I've never is, heard of it. Sophie hasn't heard of it either. <laughs> I think Becky just made this up. Anyway, continue. <laughs> maybe, maybe Becky wrote this on April first, and it's like an a, a elaborate April Fool's joke. But I, I don't think so. I've seen it. I've seen it referenced in the the Swedish media as well. But we can we can look at, at some of these words, and you know, as I mentioned, there's an article coming up on the local, which I think is going to be published on. Palm Palm Sunday, uh, Palm Sundagen, and there are words for, for every day of the week, and we'll start uh, with the one on uh, Palm Sunday. So if you stay in bed too long on Palm Sunday, you risk being called Palm Oxen, or a Palm Ox, for reasons that are unknown to me. Uh, Sophie, explain why... why no, no comment on this one. <laughs> <laughs> After every word, I'm going to say, Sophie, explain. <laughs> no, nothing to say. Uh, on um, Blue Monday, which is Easter Monday, it's also called Blue Monda, which I didn't... Did you know that? Yeah. No. <laughs> explain, Sophie. <laughs> uh, on, on Monday, if you don't get out of bed, uh, you could be called a Mager Os which is dialectal and is hard to translate into Swedish, let alone English, it says here in the article. But um, Becky has translated, Becky wrote this article and she has translated it as Skinny Ridge. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is a very ridge. literal literal translation. And um, that's why would you be a skinny ridge if you didn't get out of bed on Easter Monday? Sophie, explain. <laughs> <laughs> um, Wednesday, Dümmel, Dümmel Unster. Uh, do you know what a dümmel is? No. Well, Sophie. I, I have a big memory. Is that the thing you hit each other with? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. It's the thing on the church, right? Yes. 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 So they didn't use the church bell during this week because it would too be 
it would be too loud exactly. and offensive to Jesus. So instead they had like a little wooden spoon or something. Mm-hmm. They they knocked on the church doorway instead of, or did they put it in the church tower? It, it, the point was basically not to make as much noise as they would yeah, with the this, church. It was bread. this wooden clapper. That a wooden re- that, clapper. That that's where replaced, it meant, yeah. yeah, replaced the metal clapper for, for Easter week. Ah, so sort of muffled bell sound. Yeah, mm. exactly. Okay. And this was on the this is the the Wednesday after Easter. Not before. Before Easter. So this is Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. Yeah, and then the the dimmel stays in place until Poskfrieden is is over, which so until after Easter Saturday. So Poskfrieden is this period of stillness and respectfulness. Did you say, Sophie, that there's that, that you had some weird tradition on Ash Wednesday? Yes. We didn't call it Dimmel Onsdag. We call it Strut Onsdag in my family as a child. And and I didn't reflect so much on this until recently. And I tried to Google it and ask people. And very few people had heard about this tradition, but it does exist. And, and what we did, we sort of bullied my dad. Uh, we put a little paper. So Strut is like a cone, like an upside down cone, like a ice cream cone. Yeah. But we put one of those, like made out of paper on my dad's back as he was as he was going to work like with like a bit of sellotape right. or a pain I don't really remember and then sometimes we didn't use the cone we just put a piece of paper and it said something stupid like kick me or yo are puku like I'm an idiot uh, and and this was a tradition in, in my family for many many years but I haven't kept it up I don't know why uh, and no one else has heard about it but I googled it and apparently it goes back to the witches and the witch hunt so um, from, was it mid-17th century? Mm-hmm. And for a few years, you know, they were hunting the witches and killing them. And from 1779, the death penalty for witchcraft was abolished. Uh, and about half a century later, the trauma was over and you could start joking about witches or being a witch. And what they learned was apparently when the witch were, witches were preparing their um, broom to fly uh, to Blokula mm. to meet the devil and have fun, they used a special oil uh, to sort of prepare the broom. Okay. And this oil was kept in a horn. Right. And that horn became a cone. So in sort of mid-19th century, you started joking with people by putting a little cone on someone's back, like saying, haha, that person is a witch, so that people would sort of, you know, laugh at someone because they, it was obvious that they were a witch. And uh, a detail in this as well was that at that time, the witches flew to Blokola, not on the first day, but on Wednesday night. Okay. So you'd see these people walking around, and it was obvious to the public that they were witches, and they were preparing for for their flight, and, and that was a good joke. To, to block, wh- wh- where is Blokula, it's, by the way? It's Blå it's an island between Öland, uh, uh, Sweden's second largest island. Is that actually a real place? Yeah. yeah it, okay, it, so wh- Swedish, so let, I mean, we need to rewind a bit. Swedish witches, just before Easter, fly to this actual island near Öland. Yes. It's it's called Blå Ljungfrun, uh, the Blue Virgin, uh, but it used to be called Blokula, and it's this very like arid like rock island in the strait between Erland and Kalmar and and it's, it's a lot of sort of folklore about this being an awful place for like sailors and and um, th- that's also where where the witches would go and what what would they do when they got there i think they had a great party with the devil 
I mean, it sounds okay, doesn't it? It sounds like a decent party, yeah. yeah. They've all got their their oiled-up sort of cones on their back. Oh, hang on, I'm, I'm mixing up the traditions here. <laughs> sort of, yeah. But 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 I think it's, it's, it's really interesting because I think, uh, you know, when you're talking about Swedish Christmas, all Swedish families, you know, they have mm. exactly the same agenda and everything is happening at the same time. But when it comes to Easter, it's much more diverse, uh, both in terms of tradition. I never heard of these um, insults, for example. But also, I think dependent on where you are in the country because at Christmas the weather is going to be you know <laughs> somewhere on the scale of pretty shit to quite cold whereas at Easter it's 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 you know if, you, if you're in the north of Sweden it's still very beautiful winter you can go skiing uh, in the south of Malmö as, as you know <laughs> Richard is bright and sunny and you're ready to have a barbecue uh, so in, in, in that way you have a lot of sort of regional traditions as well dependent on the season uh, and, and I think it's more open to sort of explore uh, but I, I wouldn't mind this strut on Unsta to come back it, it could be quite fun I think it's just just a question of starting, isn't it, really? It is, it is. Oh, we should go back to Dümmel, Dümmel Unsta, which is where we started with these wooden clappers. Um, sleepyheads on Easter Wednesday are known as Dümmel Oxar or Dümmel Oxen. And so we're going back to this ox thing, um, which Sophie hasn't sufficiently explained, I don't think, really. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's that's enough of these Easter words. If you want to learn more about them, as I mentioned, we'll have uh, an article on the local.se on Sunday. Palm Sunday. If you've been enjoying the show and are not yet a member, please consider supporting The Local's independent journalism by heading over to thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer, where a subscription costs just 10 kroner for the first month. And that takes us to the end of this week's Sweden in Focus. Thank you to this week's guests. James Savage, Richard Orange and Sophie Dijksveden Devor. And thank you for listening. Until next time, take care. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind the scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com
That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.